our reading now, which comes from Zephaniah, chapter 1. In case you don't know where that is, it's on page 944 in the Church Bibles. Zephaniah is one of those books when you did sword drill, where we used to do that when I was at church. You never knew where it was, so it's about four books back from the start of the New Testament. It's a bit like sat now when you're given the uh, page number, you're not quite sure where it actually is. So, Zephaniah. Uh, We're reading from chapter 1, verse 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3. Bear with me as we read through chapter 1. It's a fairly ominous uh, reading about consequences, um, but chapter 2, the beginning of, uh, brings a simple answer to the situation. So, Zephaniah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cush, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroyed all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail to you who live in the market district. All you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring much distress on all people that will grope around like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. 
Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like windblown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. I don't know whether you've been in that situation where if you are a computer user where it's been infected by a virus to the point where it uh, no longer works, you've tried all you can do to sort it out, uh, you've taken it to, uh, to Ian to sort out, you've taken it to Gary and um, nobody knows what to do with it and uh, there's only one option left and that is to press the reset button which will return everything back to its factory settings, to how it was when it started, everything will be new again. The only problem, of course, is that you will lose all that you had, all those important files that you never backed up, all those photos, intimate moments. For me, when it happened to us, it was actually an essay that Ben had been writing for several days, which could have been a bit of a disaster had he lost that. And so before pressing that button, you try and save any valuable files that you can, maybe by trying to retrieve the, the hard drive and sort it out. When the time of Zephaniah, as God looked at his creation, it feels like he had no option open to him but to press the reset button. The world had become so corrupted that uh, he needed to start again. And so this passage which Alistair read for us starts with this image in verses 2 to 4 of a broom sweeping away everything from the face of the earth. The language here reminds us, I think, of creation language. After all, it was God who created the, the earth and everything in it, the animals, the birds in the air, the fish of the sea, and people. People who he placed on the earth to rule over it, to look after it under his rule. And now he's going to sweep it all away and cut people off from the face of the earth. This is not the first time that uh, he has said he will do this. It is the same language that is used when we read of the flood. If you turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, let me just read from verse 5 here. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And he made sure that Noah and his family were saved. He managed to save his valuable files before he pressed the reset button. But after that, God promised that he would never destroy the earth again by a flood. And so this prophecy here must be referring to the end of the world, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, when God will exercise his justice. But whilst many people will be condemned 
on that day, not everybody will be. And this passage that uh, Alistair read ends on a note of hope at the beginning of chapter 2. A hope that carries through in the rest of the book. Hope that depends on man's response, but more importantly, on the grace of God. We'll come on to that. But first it's helpful to understand the historical setting of this prophecy because in addition to the prophecy of universal judgment, there is also a prophecy of local judgment that will come upon Judah and Jerusalem at a specific time in history. We just look at those opening verses of Zephaniah. These give us some useful information about the, the context here. The prophet's name is Zephaniah. And he's speaking the word of the Lord during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now you remember that Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was Israel in the north and uh, Judah in the south. Israel was uh, conquered by Assyria in 722 BC and taken into captivity. And King Josiah ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah from 640 BC until 609 BC. That is the, the timing in which, in which Zephaniah is prophesying. Now what Josiah was renowned for, you may um, recall, and if you don't have a read about it in 2 Kings uh, chapters 22 and 23, he was the king who did away with the pagan practices, who restored the worship of Yahweh, the Lord. And that reform may have been prompted by Zephaniah's prophecy, his warning that everything had become corrupted, the people had turned away from the Lord. So what is the message, this serious message, that Zephaniah is bringing here to the people? Well, the first point I think he's bringing is that, uh, to here, God's people here is that God cannot tolerate disloyalty. God cannot tolerate disloyalty. There's something that, uh, about disloyalty that we, as humans, really find quite obnoxious, don't we? You know, think of... Um, Julius Caesar, think of the way Shakespeare just demonstrated the poignancy of that assassination with those final words of Julius Caesar as he looked at Brutus and said, Et tu, Brute? You too, Brutus? You are amongst the people who would betray me, who would kill me? And of course we think of the greatest uh, betrayal of all time, Judas Iscariot, who indicated to the guards who Jesus was by going up to him and kissing him. And what did Jesus say to Judas at that moment? He said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Words which no doubt came to haunt him, haunt him as he later realized the enormity of what he had done and took his own life. God's anger in verses 4 to 6 here is reserved for his people for Judah and for Jerusalem. These are the ones he chose out of all the nations on the earth to be his special people, the ones with whom he made a covenant that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And what do we see here? What do we see as we read these verses? They've not kept their side of the covenant. There are those here we read who are worshipping Baal. There are those who are worshipping the stars. There are those who still claim to worship God but are worshipping other gods like Molech at the same time. There are those who have just turned their backs on God and are not worshipping any other gods 
apart from maybe themselves. But of course it's the same today, isn't it? There are those who worship other gods as though it doesn't really matter which god you worship. After all, they lead all somehow to the same god. Last week we um, celebrated the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. You've been wondering probably what that coin is doing up there for a while here. Um, I don't know if you ever looked at the coin. Jeff uh, had some out there this morning. I don't know whether you know what those um, abbreviations there mean after Elizabeth II. DG, REG, FD. I won't test you, but um, what they stand for, they are Latin, Dei Gratia, Regina, and Fidei Defensor. By the grace of God, Queen, Defender of the Faith. The Queen is the Defender of the Faith the Christian faith, the one true faith. Now, sadly, the next in line to the throne is Prince Charles, who has said publicly he would like to to change that, to become defender of faiths, or defender of faith. And a desire, I'm sure, to be inclusive, to not alienate any ethnic groups in this country. But, of course, the danger is that uh, we give in to the lie that it doesn't really matter what you believe. It's good to have some sort of religious belief. Even that, if that is a belief in the stars. There are those who follow horoscopes, aren't they? As, like a religion who look to the stars to predict the future, to maybe take some comfort about what might happen to them in the future, that they may find that fulfilment that they've been looking for, that relationship that they've been so desperate for. But of course, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We are warned in Romans 1, that this would happen. It says there that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Not only are we a society that has turned to other gods, we are a society that has rejected all gods. And God says he will stretch out his hand Look here in verse 6. On those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek him nor inquire of him. Basically, those who reject God, those who are disloyal to him, those who trust now in themselves, who don't need to inquire of the Lord. Well, verse 18, as a result of this, describes God's jealousy. It talks about the fire of his jealousy. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that God is a jealous God. Before God gave his people, his covenant people, the Ten Commandments, he tells them, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. But it's not the same as human jealousy. I'm sure we all know what it is like to be jealous as humans. It's about not being able to have something or someone we want. Or maybe about being worried about losing something that we have that we think others may want and holding on to that, being possessive about it. And sometimes it leads to tragic consequences, doesn't it? You may know the, the case that's been going through recently in Tame, the murder in Ireton Court. Somebody who murdered his wife and mother-in-law, described by witnesses as being jealous and possessive. But God's jealousy is different. 
because he is the only one who, as God, deserves glory, who deserves honour. In his jealousy, he seeks to protect his honour by desiring that worship is only given to himself, that it's not given to other gods. He says in Isaiah, he says, my glory I will not give to another. And that jealousy is linked to his wrath. It's his jealousy for his honour that leads to his wrath. If he is the only true God, then how can he possibly share man's worship with other gods, with false gods? How could he allow people to worship anyone else other than the one true God? To be the one true God means that he must be devoted to his own honour. And another way of saying that is to be holy, to be a holy God. And anyone that does not seek God's honour, anyone who rejects God, who is disobedient to God, is unholy, is guilty of sin. Jesus said, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If God wasn't troubled by sin, then he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. And so God's wrath is actually an attribute that we should praise him for. And sometimes when we just, as Jeff was saying this morning, we don't really want to, to address, to deal with, we won't talk about, but it's actually something to praise him for. And I appreciate this is, in human terms, actually quite hard stuff to grasp, isn't it? Because we often think of God and his humanity, but not so much about his divinity, his holiness we find it hard to appreciate God's justice because we don't appreciate what it means to be holy. We think God, because God tolerates those who reject him in this life, that he always will do. But the message of Zephaniah here, secondly, as we come on to the second point, is that the great day of the Lord is near. The great day of the Lord is near. That day will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of justice. Moses said of God in Deuteronomy, he said this, he said, his works are perfect, all his ways are just, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. God always acts in accordance with what is right because he is the the final measure of, of justice, of goodness, of what is right. I think part of the problem we have maybe with judgment today is that as Christians we don't like to talk about it, do we? Maybe because we are uneasy with the concept ourselves. Maybe because of the reaction we think we might get. Maybe out of a fear that we feel that we are being judgmental to others. Well, if we haven't preached enough about it, then we are certainly making up for it this term with two Peter in the morning and Zephaniah in the evening. But maybe because we don't talk about it much, most unbelievers, as we said last week, either think that there won't be a judgment or if there is, that they will be, they'll be okay. And so they carry on their lives just not really worrying about it. They're living in the present, they're getting on with making money, making themselves comfortable. And that is what comes out here, isn't it? Look at verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think 
The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered. Their houses demolished. They will build houses, but not live in them. They will plant vineyards, but not drink the wine. It's like the Titanic, isn't it? People going on drinking and eating, totally oblivious to the impending disaster that is about to happen, believing that nothing could happen to them. After all, God could not sink this ship, the ship's designer said. But verse 7 there, look at verse 7, because this is a real warning. It says, be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. We're not used to silence much these days, are we? A recent uh, innovation up at Long Crendon School is to have what's called silent sitting. <clears throat> I don't know whether any teachers, I'm sure, are familiar with this. I think the teachers have realised that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, having thrown all the children out to break, to run around and go crazy, um, let their hair down, they come back into the classroom, and they're not going to concentrate on their work. They're still hyper. So they sit them down and have silent sitting. They calm down. They can get on with their work. The command here to be silent before God is a command to to stop babbling, to stop gossiping and moaning, to stop rushing around, busying yourself like humans do. And remember that there is a God, that we can't ignore him forever. And part of his nature is justice. The great day of the Lord is near. These verses here, as we read them, they're not an attack on the wealthy. They're not an attack on bankers or traders, whatever you might think about them. They're an attack on people's focus on this life, as though this is all there is. And it's a reminder that all we have in this world comes from God. We should take nothing for granted. Which also means not being upset when Things don't happen as we hope. Verse 13 says, They will build houses, but will not live in them. They will make their own plans for the immediate future, but not get to enjoy them. It's like Jesus' parable, isn't it, of the rich fool? Let's just turn to that briefly in Luke chapter 12, verse 18. Page one oh. Four five the church Bibles. Verse 16 of chapter 12. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. The great day of the Lord is near. It is, as we said earlier, a prophecy of the future, but also a warning in this context about an imminent day that the people of Judah would experience. Because of the continued disobedience of the people, 
In 597, after King Josiah's rule, the Babylonians swept down on Jerusalem and captured it. And when the people there under their rule tried to rebel against the Babylonian rule, King Nebuchadnezzar sent further troops. They reduced Jerusalem to, to rubble. They knocked down the temple. They killed many of the inhabitants and took the rest into captivity in Babylon. The description of the final day of the Lord, though, describes in verse 14 to 18 as a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry. Six days, possibly as the commentators say, contrasting with the six days of creation, Days of creation being days of peace and order and blessing. But these days being reversed. Light plunged into darkness and gloom and darkness and blackness. Order giving way to ruin. Peace exchanged for trouble. Blessings replaced with wrath. Nothing can save them. It's a bleak account. It leaves us feeling hopeless and lost. Until, of course, we come to chapter 2. And there we see the first glimmers of hope beginning to appear. Because Zephaniah's message is also that there is hope. There is hope for those who humbly seek God's grace. And here again, God is talking to his people. And he tells them, gather together, gather together. Before the appointed time arrives, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. It will all happen, but you still have a chance. I don't know what you think about risk assessments, in case you don't know what they are. Um, There's something that uh, Martin will probably give me the exact explanation, but they're things that uh, all uh, organizations, charitable institutions, companies um, have to fill in before they undertake a hazardous event, um, particularly when, when children are involved. So, for example, if you're organizing a, a tiddlywinks competition, um, you have to show that you've analyzed the, the risks, that um, uh, a fingernail may get broken, um, a, a counter may fly into somebody's eye, that sort of thing, and you've taken the necessary precautions to avoid this danger occurring. I know I'm being a bit flippant here. Risk assessments are very important. They show that uh, we're taking due concern for those in our care. But what amazes me is that people will go to extraordinary lengths to show that they've tried to do all they can to prevent something happening to them in this life. But when it comes to what happens to us after we die, people pay absolutely no attention to it. What I find incredible about those who are not Christians is their unwillingness to face up to death, to think about what will happen when they die. There are those who have heart attacks, near-death accidents, and you'd think surely now they would realize their human frailty, that they need to do business with God before the day of the Lord. And yet they don't. But that is the blindness of sin, isn't it? There is hope, but it requires action. It requires a response from us as people. What is that response? We'll have a look at verse 3 of chapter 2 there. Seek the Lord 
all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. This emphasis on humility is to admit that this is something that is not within my control. That I can do all the risk assessments in the world, but they won't help me because it doesn't depend on me. If I identify the risk as being cast into hell, the precaution is not live as good a life as possible as I can and maybe I will avoid that. It is to humbly acknowledge my sin. It is to ask God for his forgiveness to seek his righteousness. Now you may ask, well, surely if God is righteous and just and must treat people as they deserve, that is part of his character, surely then he must punish the sinful, which is all of us. How can he forgive people if he's just? How can he make us righteous? Well, the answer which I'm sure you all know, and if you do, you need to let others know, is that he is able to forgive sin because Christ died to take God's punishment for sin. As we um, finish, let's turn to Romans 3 because these um, verses here will prepare us for the Lord's table. They explain what we're doing as we take the supper. They explain where that righteousness from God comes from. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. To understand the day of judgment is to understand God's justice, his hatred of sin, his hatred of disloyalty. It's to praise him for his wrath. It's to praise him that he set aside his wrath for all those who humbly seek his grace, those who are justified through their faith in Jesus Christ.